We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stangle. Hello. Hi. How's it going? Uh, After having a brief bout of technical difficulties, we are back at it, so hopefully I don't get booted during this recording because I had a weird computer snafu the last time we tried this. So yeah, it was weird. I'll cross my fingers. So far, not my toes because that causes cramps. That's true. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. Yeah. I have a very short correction from the cubby. Last week I referred to all of the national thermogenic, thermogenic things at Yellowstone as geysers. There's also hot springs. No one said anything to me, but I just felt like I should clarify that for myself because I don't want anybody to think I'm dumb. So (laughs) (laughs) there are geysers and hot springs and the black Mm. pearl was a hot spring. So spicy. Let it be known. Let it be known. Let the record show that there are hot springs as well at Yellowstone. Yes. Fun fact. This is going to be a longer episode today. This is a topic that I had planned to cover I don't know when sometime before and I tabled it and I thought because of the girthiness because of the girthiness and also I don't know I just didn't want to write it at the time yeah wasn't in the mood this time I did so we are going to kind of go back to our roots and cover the Bermondsey horror oh yeah I feel like that isn't as descriptive of the horror just because I feel like back in the day they called everything a horror Mm -hmm. to kind of sell papers and stuff yeah that's definitely what this was okay so it was just kind of like it's a murder but they were like the horror (laughs) yeah pretty much okay okay spot on yeah You've done this a time or two. (laughs) We're done. We're done. Congratulations, everyone. Congratulations. I solved it. We solved it. Information was pulled from the following sources. A 2021 Southwark News article by Josh Salisbury. 2022 The Ministry of History article. 2018 Headstuff article by Kieran Conleaf. 2015 Mental Floss article by Caitlin Schneider. Capital Punishment UK. Farnham Street blog article. Murderpedia. And Wikipedia. All right. Capital Punishment website. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And links to all of these articles will be included in the show notes. So as I mentioned, we're going back to our roots this week with the good old-fashioned murder. Yep. This one is the result of a love affair gone wrong. As most or a good handful of murders do. Yep. Yeah. And the perpetrators of this crime are a couple from London, England, named Fred and Maria Manning. Uh Uh-oh. 
Frederick George Manning, who is the less well-documented of the pair, is believed to have been born around 1819 in Taunton in southeast England. Wait, he's less documented and he is the man? Oh, yes. Oh. Mm-hmm. Intrigue. He was the eldest son of a local militiaman who worked two jobs to support his family, as a toll keeper and as the owner of a pub in Taunton called The Bear. Oh. I wonder if it was I'd a happy bear. To, I'd love to go to a pub called The Bear. Same. Get like a good old meat pie. Mm-hmm. Hang out. Get a nice ice cold ale. Yeah. Probably be room temp at that time. Yeah, probably would have been, yeah. Yeah. Meat pie might have been a little gamey. But you know, mm-hmm. it's there. It's there. Yeah. It's the vibes. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The bear knows. The bear knows. It's unclear when, but at some point, Fred went to work on the railroad, which allowed him to travel to London, where he eventually got a job as a guard for the Great Western Railway. Ooh. Yeah. Pretty good gig. Okay. I know there's not a lot known about him, but was Mm -hmm. he a relatively kind of like bigger guy? His security and his dad being a militiaman. No, I don't think he was. I mean, he wasn't scrawny, but he... Just wasn't average. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'll I'll allude to it later on, but he wasn't that much bigger than me. He was not up there. <laughs> Which back then maybe would have been pretty big, I guess. Like he was five foot eight. Okay. So yeah, he was that was average to tall at that point, I think. Because wasn't Washington George Washington like super tall at six feet in seventeen in the seventeen hundreds? I don't know. That's an obscure fact that I don't know the answer to. Really? But, You've yeah. never heard that? Oh, I heard, yeah. He was, like, considered a giant because he was six feet. And, like, had to duck his head in the ships he was on. Well, most people were under five feet tall, so. So, yeah, I suppose he would have been a bigger person. Yeah. As far as height is concerned. But not the bigger person in this. (laughs) No, no. Well, you'll you'll for sure figure that out, yeah. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. Womp womp. When his father passed away in 1845, he left the bulk of the property to Fred's mother, with the stipulation that it would all be passed down to Fred upon his mother's passing. Okay. He did inherit some money and had accumulated around 400 pounds, or around 30,000 pounds today, by the time he met Maria in 1845 at the age of around 26. Maria was born Marie LaRue in Lausanne, Switzerland in 1821. Her parents died sometime in the mid-1840s, and she started working as a domestic servant, or a maid, in England. Marie was described as charismatic and good-looking, with dark features and a healthy plumpness that drew many admirers. Ooh, she was thick with two C's. Yep. Ooh. One of the first documented cases of her working in England is as the first maid of Lady Anna Polk of Halden House in Devon in 1843. Marie changed her name to Maria when she moved to England and was 22 at the time she started working for Lady Polk, who was the wife of Sir Lawrence Polk, who was a member of Parliament. Wow. Okay. So she started working for Lady Blantyre, who was the daughter of the Duchess of Sutherland, in Stafford House in 1846, following the death of her first mistress. Which, I don't know how she passed away. I didn't dive too deep into it. But just know that Maria didn't do anything to her. So Okay, cool. (laughs) She didn't murder her. (laughs) 
It's like, this is when it begins. <laughs> yep. It begins. And it was around this time that Maria made the acquaintance of Patrick O'Connor. Patrick was an Irish immigrant from Tipperary who worked in London on the docks. Known as a crooked customs inspector who made his money via smuggling and money lending. Uh-oh. He was 50 years old at the time that he met Maria on a boat to Boulogne, where she was headed to meet her new mistress, Lady Blantyre, and he was traveling to France on holiday. Okay. Even though Patrick was twice her age, she was 25 at the time, and a heavy drinker, she found herself totally smitten and asked him if he would keep in contact with her. Did she? Yeah. Oh. He promised to purchase her a meal when they reached London. So on the return trip. Okay. Fred had met Maria back in 1845 when she was still employed by Lady Polk, most likely when they had been traveling via railroad on the Great Western Line. So as a guard, he would have seen her. Mm -hmm. Maria kept in touch with both men, even after she moved into the residence of Lady Blantyre in London's West End. The Stafford House was one of the most grand in the capital, and Queen Victoria herself was a regular visitor. Ooh. Yeah, fancy. Yeah. Along with some of the richest people in the empire. Both her male suitors would brag about going to visit the Stafford House, even if all they saw of it were the servant quarters. I bet the servant quarters were pretty nice. Yeah. Like, comparatively. Yeah, I would agree. Mm-hmm. Maria wrote to Patrick about how frustrated she was that he refused to marry her. So when Fred proposed to her in 1847, she accepted. Ooh. Mind you, Maria had been biding her time to see if she could suss out who of her two suitors would be able to provide the best for her financially. Yeah, I mean, she's all alone and she's working as a servant and probably doesn't want to be a servant, especially after being a servant at the nicest place in town. Yep. She's kind of gotten her eye on the the finer things in life. Yeah. Kind of wanted that. And she's pretty and young. Fred seemed like a known thing, given that he was set to inherit quite a bit of land following his mother's death. But it's also believed that he embellished just how much in order to impress Maria. No, what? <laughs> what? That has never happened when somebody just starts dating someone. Yeah. That's and funny. has a competitor. Yeah. Regardless, the pair married at St. James Church in Piccadilly on May 27th, 1847. And one of the attendees was a man named Henry Poole, who was another guard for the Great Western Line and one of Fred's best mates. Aww. He will come into play later. Uh-oh. Although Patrick did not attend the wedding, which is good. Yeah, please don't. It is believed that he sent Maria a letter soon after declaring his undying love and Ugh. claiming that he was going to propose, but that she'd married Fred before he'd had a chance to do so. Of course, the drunk jerk. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to, but like you, you rushed into it. So yeah, whatever. this is on you. Whatever, I guess. It's your fault. Following their wedding, Maria had planned to stay on as a maid until she and Fred decided to start a family, which is what would have typically been done during this time. Yeah, that makes sense. Can't really be around all of that lime and stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sort of things you get into when you get pregnant. Mm -hmm. Things took a turn, however, when Fred was fired from Great Western over a reason that was never made public. Uh-oh. 
there was speculation that he had taken part in a robbery, although there was never enough evidence to convict him on any actual charges. Regardless, as a result, the pair made the decision to move to Fred's hometown of Taunton, where they purchased an inn called the White Hart. Things weren't ideal for the pair following their departure from London. Reports claim that Maria went off to London to stay with Patrick several times during their marriage, which Fred was fully aware of. And that Fred wasn't any better after becoming friendly with a lady or two in town. Gross. Even if this is true, for the most part, the pair did stay together. Okay. They just had... <laughs> did, the, did the White Heart Inn have an upside-down pineapple on it? No. No? Oh, okay. No. They must have just had some sort of don't ask, don't tell agreement or something. I don't know. Mm. Which, Okay. No judgment. Well, you, you do know, you. honestly, them being with high society so long, I bet you they were exposed to plenty of that kind of behavior. This is true. New Year's Day, 1849, really changed things for the married couple. On that day, a great western train that was traveling from Plymouth to London was robbed. The perpetrators had broken into the mail car and raided all of the bags, walking away with valuables estimated to total 4,000 pounds, or around 355,000 pounds today. Wow. Yeah. Not only is that a crazy haul today, but a comfortable living wage during this period in history was 100 pounds a year, or around 8,900 pounds today. So that was, like, huge. Yeah, you were you were very well off. Everybody mm-hmm. would have been very well off. And you're probably wondering what this train robbery has to do with Fred Maria. Well, the robbery itself was a bit of a mystery, as there were no suspects, at least until they attempted the same grift the next day when the train was heading back from London to Plymouth. Why would you do it again? You already got away with it. Because they're not smart. This time, the train had one of their best guards working, and once he realized the theft had been made, he also put together the fact that the mail car can only be accessed from the first-class compartments. Okay. Even though I'm sure they had to wade their way through a slew of Karens and Carls as they searched each compartment, Mm -hmm. it paid off when masks and a grappling hook were discovered in one of the cars. They left it all there? Uh, Yeah, apparently. Uh, Okay. The occupants were both arrested and charged, and they included a man named Edward Nightingale and Fred's former co-worker and best mate, Henry Poole. Okay, I'm sorry, but the Nightingale guy was destined to be a criminal. That is the name of a criminal. Yep. Yep. As you can imagine, a crime this sensational was all over the papers. Yep. Immediately, Fred and Maria came under suspicion as both Edward and Henry had stayed at their inn. That's how they come in. Yeah. It didn't help matters that Edward was also, had also used Fred's name as an alias more than once in the past. Oh, when he was gallivanting? Mm-hmm. Interesting. The pair were eventually cleared of any involvement in the robberies, but the damage had already been done. Some papers began printing a story that the police had been given advance warning of the robberies, and it was heavily implied that Maria had tipped off the authorities as a way to get back at Fred for his wandering eye by taking her revenge out on his best friend. I don't 
know. I feel like that could be a possibility, but if if she wanted that better life, he might as well stay silent, take the cash, and Mm -hmm. leave him. Yeah. It doesn't matter that the story doesn't make any sort of sense. Right. (laughs) As soon as it started being circulated, business at the White Hart Inn dropped significantly, Mm -hmm. forcing the Mannings to sell it and move back to London to escape all the stigma. Yeah, I bet. Especially in a smaller town. Yeah. And if their marriage was strained before, the loss of the inn seemed to just be one more pressure point on an already splintering relationship. The pair owned a pub called King John's Head on Kingsland Road for a short time before they eventually moved to Miniver Place in Bermondsey. It was here that Maria took up work as a dressmaker, and the pair welcomed lodgers into their home in order to pay the bills. Okay. At this point, Fred wasn't working, and instead spent his time drinking heavily. Great. So Fred is like her first suitor, Mm -hmm. only probably not rich anymore. Yeah. yeah. Great. One of their lodgers, a medical student named William Massey, later recalled a disturbing encounter he had with Fred around this time. Fred started asking William rather morbid questions about the effects of chloroform and other drugs, as well as if someone would be able to sign a check while drugged. Oh. William found the conversation so unsettling that he shortly moved out. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's a good call. You're in medical school. Congratulations. Good call. Figured it out. At the same time, Maria wasn't even hiding the fact that she was still seeing Patrick, to the point that she was spending more time with him than her actual husband. Oh, and he would have been older at this time. and Yeah. Okay. So it should come as no surprise that something was going to give. Yep. Friday, August 10th, 1849, Patrick didn't show up for work. Even though he had less than legal tendencies when it came to his money lending, he never missed a day of work and had an almost perfect attendance record. But didn't he not have it? Oh. Patrick. Yeah. The older one. Oh, okay. Sorry. Okay. Not her husband. Yeah. The side guy. Yeah. So when Saturday rolled around and he still hadn't shown up for work, one of his co-workers started to suspect that something was very wrong. Yeah, I I would assume so. William Flynn, who was Patrick's cousin as well as his co-worker at the docks, went to Patrick's place in Mile End to see if he could figure out what was going on with his cousin. When he got there, he found two of Patrick's friends at his place. They told William that they had last seen Patrick on Thursday when he informed them he had been invited to dinner by his girl Maria. Uh Uh-huh. William next spoke to Patrick's landlady, who informed him that Maria Manning would regularly visit Patrick at his lodging on Thursday and Friday nights, and she had been by both nights that week to find that Patrick wasn't home both times. Okay. William immediately went to the Metropolitan Police. As you would, yep. The police weren't able to speak to anyone at the Manning residence until the following day on Sunday when they caught Maria at home. When questioned, she stated that Patrick hadn't shown up for dinner on Thursday, so she had gone to his lodgings on Thursday and Friday to see if he was sick. Mm -hmm. When asked where Fred was, she informed the officers that he was attending church and that the pair planned to go out Sunday evening and would not be home if the police wished to come speak with them further. Oh, how convenient. I know. 
We have plans with God. (laughs) (laughs) Peace out. Sunday dinner plans with God. The following day, William visited the Mannings once again with a police officer. And after interrogating the couple once again and getting the same story, he walked away with a feeling that something awful had happened to his cousin. Yeah, I would too. William distributed flyers offering a 10 pound or around 888 pounds today reward for any information about his cousin and his whereabouts. He went back to Patrick's apartment to give it a more thorough search and discovered that the railway bonds and cash that he knew his cousin had there, along with some valuables, were missing. Surprise. I know. Shock and surprise. Shock and awe. (laughs) William's suspicions were confirmed on Tuesday when he discovered that Maria was seen leaving her home with luggage and hadn't returned home since. Yeah. After notifying the police, they started to keep an eye on the house and noticed that a man kept coming to collect the contents of the home that he'd purchased from Fred. So like furniture and stuff. Weird. After conducting a search of the home and finding nothing, they dug up the back garden and again came up empty-handed. The Friday after Patrick had gone missing, on August 17th, the police noticed that the flagstones in the kitchen had recently been scrubbed clean, so they pulled them up. It quickly became apparent that they had been relayed fairly recently, so the police started to dig. Around a foot below where the flagstones had been, they discovered the naked body of Patrick O'Connor, who was covered in quicklime. Ooh, they wanted to decompose him really fast. He was 53 at the time of his murder. For those who don't know, as Maddie mentioned, quicklime, or calcium oxide, is typically used for water and flue gas treatment in the mining industry, as well as in the production of paper, pulp, iron, and steel. But its more nefarious use, due to its caustic nature, was as a way to burn the skin and speed up the decomposition process to eliminate bodies. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's not nice to the human body. No. Time. No. So if he was covered in it, then he was probably pretty decomposed by the time they got him. Because that would have been, it was more than a week. It was a little over a week. Been. Yeah. Yeah. It was initially unclear how exactly Patrick had been murdered, but he was shot in the back of the head. The bullet, which cracked his skull and traveled under his skin before lodging itself just above his eyebrow. And the shot didn't kill him. Oh, great. The blows he'd sustained to his head were what killed him. Great. Great. It would later be revealed that he was shot point blank in the back of the head, and when he didn't die, a crowbar was used to finish the job. What a horrible death. Mm-hmm. Wow. Later, the couple would implicate each other, Maria blaming Fred and Fred blaming Maria. Of course. Regardless of who fired the gun and bashed in his skull, the fact remained that both of them had worked together to bury him. Fred fled after <laughs> after selling all of the furniture maria okay. was the first one to take off got it as soon as the case broke the public clamored for more information they immediately vilified maria as the culprit since the idea of a female killer sold more papers well of course and she was pretty and young mm-hmm. and you know she had been flaunting this extramarital affair 
Mm-hmm. So. And she she wasn't at church that day. No, she wasn't. So. Tales were soon being spun that she was the mastermind behind the whole thing, killing her lover out of a sense of greed, since her husband was unemployed and broke, having not gotten the inheritance she had been promised. I mean, it's not completely implausible. No. The story continued that she'd forced her drunk husband to take part, which made her the main focus of the investigation, primarily because her movements were easier to track than those of her husband. Who was probably just at home. (laughs) (laughs) Police tracked her whereabouts to the London Bridge station, where she'd stored several boxes in their luggage office. Boxes that contained bloodstained clothes, the letters she'd received from Patrick, as well as the letters she'd written to him, no doubt stolen from his apartment along with other documents. Mm -hmm. Should I be like, I didn't know him. From here, she traveled to Euston Station, where she'd purchased a first-class ticket to Edinburgh. After securing lodgings, she'd done her best to convert the railway stocks she'd stolen from Patrick's apartment into cash in order to fund her flight from the country. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, some of the shares she'd tried to cash out had been reported as stolen, so the stockbrokers contacted the police. Nice. The police received a telegraph that Maria was most likely in Edinburgh, so on the same day that the bloody luggage had been discovered in London, the police contacted authorities in Edinburgh who arrested Maria where she was staying under a false name. All told, during her ransacking of Patrick's apartment, she'd stolen hundreds of pounds worth of cash, not to mention chains and gold watches, in addition to the foreign railway bonds she'd attempted to cash in. Dang, so she would have made it out. Very well. Yeah. Maria, who had been on the run for a week, was finally extradited back to London after three days, and the Scottish press enjoyed publishing the story of the woman in the black satin dress who had been trying to escape murder charges. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Fred was giving the police a harder time when it came to finding him. After selling off the pair's furniture, he traveled to Waterloo Station, where he all but disappeared. Part of why it was so hard to track Fred down was because, unlike his wife, he didn't have any sort of real distinctive features that made him easy to find. <laughs> he was just a Fred. He was just a Fred. He was described as five foot eight, like I mentioned before, with fair hair and a ruddy complexion. I mean, there were tons of drunk people at this point in history. Like, yeah. he's going to look like anybody. Yep. As a result, the police were swamped with leads from Islington to Dublin that proved to be false. They're basically just like, oh yeah, I saw this guy. Yeah. That wasn't him. Almost two weeks after the murder, on August 28th, they finally received a solid lead. Earlier in March of 1849, Fred stayed in a guest house in Guernsey. While on a steamship headed for Jersey, the sister of the housekeeper, who hadn't heard of the murder until that point, recognized Fred on the steamship and tipped off police. Nice. Fred had planned to flee to France, but ended up drinking to the point where he generally annoyed everyone around him at the pub by drinking excessive amounts of brandy every day. Oh, no. When the police arrived in Jersey... He was still in town, but it still took them several days to track him down. Fred was finally arrested on August 30th, evading capture for nine days longer than Maria. That's hilarious. He's just drinking and bothering everybody. (laughs) 
<laughs> Nobody knew. Pretty much. <laughs> Maria refused to talk upon her arrest, but Fred was immediately quite the chatty Kathy. Oh, I'm sure after all that brandy. He asked if Maria had been arrested, and when it was confirmed, he was all too eager to paint her as the murderer, stating that he was completely innocent. Oh, mm. yeah. Everyone knew this was a blatant lie, as there was no way that Maria was strong enough to rip up the kitchen flagstones by herself. It's true. Investigators happily sat by while Fred went on and on, implicating his wife, as they knew that by pitting the pair against one another, chances were high they would both be convicted for murder. Yep. He also let slip at one point regarding Patrick, quote, I never liked him, so I battered his head with a ripping chisel, a.k.a. a crowbar. Oh, no. (laughs) I didn't like him, so yeah, I killed him, but it was all her. (laughs) But it was all her. It was all her. I just hit him a couple of times. Yeah. The public quickly labeled the case as the Bermondsey Horror, and they mm-hmm. clamored for information on the villainess Maria, who was described, as I mentioned, as attractive, not to mm-hmm. mention she was foreign, coming from Swiss lineage. Oh, no. And had also worked in the households of some of the richest people in London. Right. And I'm sure they were just thrilled to have her associated with their home. Yeah. Her actions when in public also attracted the attention of readers, as she was often composed and calm, or quote-unquote, cold and calculating, as it was listed in the papers. Of course. So harsh was her vilification that after the trial, the black satin dresses that she would be seen in quickly went out of fashion for women of the day. Oh, dang. And that's something that's kind of been like... A lot of places said it happened, but then some people were like, no, it just was a bad look. So, who knows? I thought, I think it's fun to put it in there, though. Mm -hmm. The initial charges were for murder, and the Mannings were put on trial. Remember poor William, the medical student that had once lodged with the Mannings? Yeah. During the trial, he turned over some very interesting evidence. Oh. While lodging with the couple... He learned that Patrick had left the bulk of his property to Maria in his will. Did he know? Giving the couple a perfect motive. There we go. Additionally, evidence was provided proving that the couple had purchased a shovel and the lime prior to when the murder took place. What? Premeditation? So it it seemed like a pretty open and shut case. Yeah. Yep. The challenge in this case was the matter of the conspiracy to commit murder. Mm. Under the law, a wife could not be charged as an accessory for a murder that her husband had committed, as it was presumed that her loyalty would be to her husband. Okay. The prosecution would need to prove that she was aware of the murder plot ahead of the actual crime, or that she herself was the actual mastermind behind the murder. Okay. The trial started on October 25th, 1849 at the Old Bailey with Chief Justice Cresswell presiding, and Fred and Maria were each represented by different counsel, with William Ballantine representing Maria and Charles Wilkins representing Fred. Ballantine attempted to have Maria tried separately from her husband, arguing that as a foreigner, she should be tried by a jury that was made up half of English citizens as well as half Swiss or French citizens. Interesting. 
Meanwhile, Fred would be tried by an all-English jury. The motion was denied since Maria's marriage to Fred made her an English citizen in the eyes of the law. True. And so the joint trial commenced. The main evidence that was presented against Maria was a bloodstained dress and a receipt showing that she had paid for the lime and the shovel and had it delivered prior to Patrick's murder on July 23rd, along with the shovel arriving on August 8th. Ah, so she bought the lime and the shovel. So in this case, Fred's guilt in the murder was heavily implied. Yeah. During court proceedings, the jury learned that they had initially intended to kill Patrick on August 8th, but he had brought a friend named Pierce Walsh with him to dinner because he had been invited to dinner at their home. Mm -hmm. So the following day, she invited him back for a more intimate get-together, if you catch my drift. Ah. And it was then that he was murdered and placed in the pre-dug grave in the kitchen floor. The pair also apparently sat down and ate dinner together, following his burial as if nothing had happened. Dang. Yep. Maria's attorney tried to use the defense of time, noting the last time that Patrick had been seen alive, as well as the time when Maria went to visit his lodgings, stating that it was impossible that she was home when the murder was believed to have taken place. The prosecution Mm. argued that it's just as likely that the crime took place after she returned from Patrick's apartment. Yeah. Well, and she's already guilty for buying the stuff ahead of time. Yeah. So it wouldn't really matter that much. Yeah. After two days of testimony, which was a lot considering most cases at the time were settled in a matter of hours, Hmm. it took the jury only 45 minutes to find the pair guilty of the murder of Patrick O'Connor. Dang. That's quick. Yeah. Before the sentence was passed, the pair were allowed to speak freely in court. Oh, no. Fred had nothing to say in his own defense, while Maria vehemently argued that there was, quote, no justice and no right for a foreign subject in this country. You have treated me like a wild beast of the forest, end quote. A wild beast of the forest. Wow. Mm -hmm. She attempted to continue her tirade as the judge passed the sentence, which was death by hanging. Unlike the cool and collected aura she had up until this point portrayed to the public, as she was led away, she continued to rant and rave about the injustice of her sentence. While in the carriage on the way to the jail, her mood instantly changed to one of good-naturedness, but upon arriving at her jail cell, she instantly collapsed in grief. Wow, she went through all, all emotions. She went through all the things. Oh, man. Maria was put on watch to ensure she didn't attempt to complete suicide prior to her sentence being carried out. Yeah. Following the trial, the press did what they do best and attempted to fill in the blanks on the story behind the murder. Yeah, why not? Of course she was the mastermind, forcing her poor husband to go along with it. Yeah. Of the two, Maria was the only one who put forth an appeal. As her defense was gathering new evidence, she experienced a brief moment of hope when a rumor came out that her marriage to Fred had actually been bigamous, that he had been married prior, which would mean she was entitled to a new and separate trial. Unfortunately, the rumor proved to be false. Dang. (laughs) Oh, sorry. 
and the appeals court upheld the ruling that she could not have a mixed jury as a result of her marriage, and thus her execution would move forward as planned. As a last-ditch effort to escape the noose, Maria sent letters to her previous employers, as well as the Queen, hoping that the Queen's influence would allow her to get a royal pardon. Uh, the letters were returned unopened. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. You were just a servant. Sorry. Yep. Maria did attempt to complete suicide the morning of her scheduled execution by strangling herself. Ugh. But her guards were able to stop her. Her execution was to be a public one, and it was in front of a crowd that numbered in the thousands. Reports saying it was anywhere between 30 to 50,000 people. Oh my goodness. As well as 500 to 1,000 police officers to manage the crowd. Dang. Charles Dickens was even in attendance. Stop. Not as a witness to the execution, but to watch the crowd itself. Weird. In a letter to the Times, he wrote the following regarding the hanging and described the event as, quote, and this is only part of the letter, quote, when the sun rose brightly, as it did, it gilded thousands upon thousands of upturned faces, so inexpressibly odious in their brutal mirth or callousness, that a man had cause to feel ashamed of the shape he wore and to shrink from himself as fashioned in the image of the devil. When the two miserable creatures who attracted all this ghastly sight about them were turned quivering into the air, there was no more emotion, no more pity, no more thought that two immortal souls had gone to judgment, no more restraint in any of the previous obscenities than if the name of Christ had never been heard in this world, and there were no belief among men that they perished like the beasts. Mm. I have seen habitually some of the worst sources of general contamination and corruption in this country, and I think there are not many phases of London life that could surprise me. I am solemnly convinced that nothing but ingenuity could devise to be done in the city, in the same compass of time, could work such ruin as one public execution, and I stand astounded and appalled by the wickedness it exhibits. I do not believe that any community can prosper where such a scene of horror and demoralization as was enacted this morning outside Horsemonger Lane Jail is presented at the very doors of good citizens and is passed by unknown or forgotten. And when in our prayers and thanksgivings for the season, we are humbly expressing before God our desire to remove the moral evils of the land, I would ask your readers to consider whether it is not a time to think of this one and to root it out, end quote. Mm. Additionally, the crowd was so clamorous to see the execution that one woman was actually crushed to death and two men were severely injured. Wow. And so the pair were hanged together at Horsemonger Lane Jail in Walworth around 9 a.m. on Tuesday, November 13th, 1849. Fred died instantly, while Maria slowly strangled to death after her neck didn't break. Fred was 30, and Maria was 28 years old at the time of their executions. Mm. Following their deaths, they were given the distinction of the first husband and wife couple to be hanged together in England since 1700. I'm sure they loved that, Yep, since they were such a loving couple. In a write-up in the Times regarding the hanging the following day, 
quote, the procession passed along a succession of narrow passages, fenced in with ponderous gates, side rails, and chevaux de frise of iron. In its course, a singular coincidence happened. The Mannings walked over their own graves, as they had made their victim do over his. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Manning walked to her doom with a firm, unfaltering step. Being blindfolded, she was led along by Mr. Harris, the surgeon. She wore a handsome black satin gown. <sighs> Going back to the gown. Yeah. At last, nine o'clock struck, and shortly after, the dreadful procession emerged from a small door in the inner side of a square piece of brickwork which rests on the east end of the prison roof. To reach this height, a long and steep flight of stairs had to be climbed, and it only wonderful that Manning, in his weak and tottering state, was able to ascend so far. As he ascended to the steps leading to the drop, his limbs tottered under him, and he was scarcely able to move. When his wife approached the scaffold, he turned round with his face towards the people, while Calcraft proceeded to draw over his head the white nightcap and adjust the fatal rope. The executioner then drew the nightcap over the female prisoner's head, and all the necessary preparations now being completed, the scaffold was cleared of all its occupants except the two wretched beings doomed to die. Mm -hmm. In an instant, Calcraft withdrew the bolt, the drop fell, and the sentence of the law was fulfilled. Frederick died almost without a struggle, while Maria writhed for some seconds. Their bodies were left to hang for the customary hour before they were taken down and in the evening buried in the precincts of jail, end quote. In an ironic twist of justice, Uh-oh. they were both buried on prison grounds in graves lined with quicklime, just as they'd done to Patrick O'Connor. That is... That is poetic justice in a way. Yep. And lastly, Charles Dickens, who was among the many that championed the abolishment of public hangings, which were eventually abolished in 1868, based the character of Mademoiselle Hortense, the maid of Lady Dedlock in his book Bleak House, on Maria Manning. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. And that was the Bermondsey horror. It sucked, but I wouldn't necessarily call it a horror. Yeah, I tend to think of... When you say something like a horror, I think of more than one, like a massacre. More than one victim, or it's something like super graphic. I don't know. Not not to dismiss or belittle no. the fact that they did kill a person. Right. I definitely feel like the publishers of the paper took some creative liberties when they were trying to sell. They definitely did. If you like all things spooky, then check out A Spooky Tales, hosted by us, Christina. NMJ, where we talk about all things spooky, paranormal stories, haunted places, myths, and legends. Listen to guests tell us their scary stories. And I hear them call me by by my name. So I run into the kitchen to check, and there's nobody there. And I start to, like, hear, like, my closet door start to open. Oh, hell no. Like, oh, my God. Inside. Oh, hell no. All of a sudden, for no reason, I woke up in the middle of the night. Like my eyes just snapped open, and it's that strange feeling that you have when something wakes you up. You and you don't know what has woken you up until you either see what it was or you hear whatever it was. There are new episodes every Friday. Listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts, as well as at SpookyTales.com.
And this week's podcast plug is A Spooky Tales, where two friends, Christina and MJ, focus on Latin American folklore, myths, legends, haunted places, and spooky stories, imas. <laughs> they are one of the newest shows on the Cultivate Network, and you'll be hearing both of them in an upcoming episode of Can You Crack the Cramp Word? So if you want to hear stories that will keep you up at night, look no further than a Spooky Tales. New episodes come out on Fridays, and we'll have a link in the show notes. So what's something good you'd like to share? I went to the pool yesterday, and it was fun. <laughs> the same pool that last week you were like... No, no, we <laughs> went to the outdoor one, not the indoor Okay, one. I was like, bold, <laughs> bold choice. The, the indoor one is now open. But I have not not been in. That's fair. Since the police told us not to <laughs> a couple of days, like a week ago. That's fair. And I still have yet to figure out what happened. So yeah, short and sweet, but it was it was just really nice to be in the pool and swim a little bit, float a little bit. Nice. It's very relaxing. What about you? What's something good? Uh, something good is the fact that. Both my children are going to camp this week, so I will have the bulk of the day to myself several days this week, which I am super excited about. It's just, I mean, it's a rare thing, especially after a family vacation. I'm sure you want a little bit of peace. It's going to be so quiet. It's going to be amazing. Mm -hmm. I love my kids, but it's something. You love your kids and want peace. Yeah. Like. Uh, a little couple hours a piece every day. And it's something where they will enjoy the time away. It's Girl Scout camp. Yeah. They're going to enjoy spending time with their friends, being mm-hmm. outside. It'll be fine. Yep. It's good for both of us. <laughs> All right. Let's shut her down. Okay. You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Facebook and Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. We also have a YouTube channel. You should subscribe. It's pretty great. Mm-hmm. Check it out. We also have a P.O. box if you'd like to send us something in the mail. I admittedly have not checked it in a few days. And by a few days, I mean a few weeks. So Ooh, I have a request. Yeah? I've recently discovered there's such a thing as Dragon Fruit Fanta, and I want to try it, and I can't find it. So if someone <laughs> could send it. <laughs> Just a singular, lukewarm... Dragon Fruit Fanta. That would be great. My birthday is in a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? It's like all like fizzed out. and Ugh. I'd still just be excited that somebody sent it. Well, if you want to send it to us, you can send it to Yield Crime Podcast, P.O. Box 341, Wyoming, Minnesota 55092. You can also email us at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions. We miss answering questions. It's always fun. And send us your gifts. Or if you have some story suggestions, let us know. Mm-hmm. A great way to support the show if you want to help us out but can't do so financially is to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, or leave a rating on Spotify. This is another screenshot of a review, so I don't know what platform it's on. I'm assuming it's Apple Podcasts, and I don't know who submitted it. But it's a five-star review, and it says, Very Mm -hmm. awesome. I love how they set the stage. 
and I love how you bring up the past crimes we don't hear about so often. Great gals that make you laugh. Oh, thank you. If you would like to support us financially, you can do so over at Buy Me a Coffee to leave a one-time donation. You can also join our Patreon for as low as a dollar a month to get early ad-free access to all of our content, as well as some additional bonus content from other shows where we have been guests. Mm-hmm. And lastly, if you want to rep our merch, head on over to Tee Public and pick up some fun swag. Swag, swag. Swag, swag. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale as Elvis Crime.